Father, we love you. God, you are so great, Lord. Um, so overwhelmed with your greatness and yet your nearness to us, God, that a God so great who created the stars and the universe, who um, flung them into being, who creates our earth in orbit, who created all things would also be near to us, that you would come as we just dug into for five weeks in Advent, that you would come to earth as a baby, weak and helpless, uh, just like us, and that you would take on human form and humble yourself and ultimately take on our sin, take all of our shame and all of our guilt. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you for your greatness, but thank you for your goodness to us, God. Um, God, I pray today as we and a bunch of other churches in our city um, sing to you as we uh, sing in the new, the new year together, uh, God, that the churches around this place would um, lift high the name of Jesus. Um, no other name would be praised in the churches in our town and in Savannah and this area, God, that, that our country would bring a revival in our nation in this year. God, that you would reverse some of the works of the enemy that he has begun and begin to bring awakening to your church. God, we long for that. We pray that it would happen, God. And, and this morning, as we faithfully just go one week at a time preaching your word, God, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, anoint your word, God. I, I'm a weak man. I don't deserve to even speak your word, let alone preach on it. But Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully this morning in our hearts. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. I'm not going to ask who stayed up for the Georgia game uh, because I can tell the bags under your eyes, the gray hairs popping out of your head. Um, but I am going to ask, uh, we began this series asking uh, when Christmas begins. And I'd love to end it by asking when Christmas ends. So if you're the type of person that thinks that Christmas decorations come down as soon as possible, raise your hand. All right. Wow. Yes. We have an amen over here. Uh, if you're the type of person that's New Year's Day, like this afternoon, you're going to go home and take decorations down. Who's that? All right, a couple people. Mid-January, anybody? All right. All year round. Does anyone keep them up all year? Nobody? My mom does that. They're just up. Like, there's a little, like, creepy fairy elf in our bathroom that's, like, in the corner, and you're washing your hands. You look over, it's like, oh, my gosh. And it's there in July. It's all year round. So um, I'm sorry for you Grinches that thought Christmas was over on the 26th, but we still have Christmas decorations out, and we are still in our Advent series, Okay. We're going to run it all year, all right? Um, no, we're going to do one more sermon in it. Um, and actually, the sermon's not going to have anything to do with the birth of Christ. But I'll tell you in the conclusion why I'm keeping it in the Emmanuel series. So don't fall asleep, you Georgia fans. Um, stay tuned. Um, but what I, what I was doing is, um, as I was kind of thinking about this sermon, and we're not starting Acts yet until next week. So we're going to dive back into Acts chapter 9. But so I was praying about what would God have us um, learn from his word in the new year. And as I've been praying for our church, I, I was actually thinking about, I, I wonder what Paul would write to us. So if you've been tracking with us, you know that we're about to dive in to the ministry of the Apostle Paul for nine months, okay? So we're going to follow him all around the, the, the Roman world at that time as, on his missionary journey as he plants churches. And what Paul would do, if you're new to church and new to the Bible, is he would write letters to different churches in different towns. So most of your New Testament is actually comprised of letters written by the Apostle Paul to churches. So Corinthians, he wrote to Corinth, Romans, he wrote to Rome, Ephesians, he wrote to Ephesus, Galatians, he wrote to Galatia, so on and so forth. They're all letters by him to these churches. Um, and each of these letters at the beginning has an introduction, and then it typically has a prayer that Paul is praying for that church at that particular time. And so I was wondering, what would Paul pray for our church? going into the new year. We're a brand new church. We're five months in, so we're beginning our sixth month today. Um, we're in 
a small town on the outskirts of Savannah, and God has just given us incredibly rapid growth as we started. And, and actually, there is a church uh, that Paul wrote to in a small town um, that had incredibly rapid growth. It was a new church plant. It was called the, the, the city of Colossae, the church of Colossians. So uh, would you turn with me to Colossians 1? So we're going to dive in to Paul's introduction in Colossians 1. So this is just a one-off sermon. We're going to ask, what would, God, what would Paul say to our church at this juncture to this church in Colossae. So as you're turning there, um, just want to give you a little bit of background. So Colossae was a, a small town in Asia Minor. It was near Ephesus, Cappadocia, Bithynia. It was in that area of Asia Minor that is now um, kind of in the Middle East today. Um, and it was a small church that a man named Epaphras planted. And as, pretty much as soon as he planted it, it started taking off. It has incredible increase, incredible growth. And so Paul oversees He's an apostle. He oversees all these churches in this area. So he's never been to Colossae, but he's writing a letter to that church. And, and what it says, is he's been praying for that church. And so what we're going to do, Colossians 1, we're going to read the introduction. So we're going to read 1 through 14, and then we're going to zoom in on verses 9 through 10 for our sermon. So y'all read along with me. Colossians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it. And understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to, to us your love in the Spirit. So what he's saying is, we've heard about your love, we've heard about the increase of the gospel, we've heard about the fruitfulness through Epaphras, and so we've been praying for you constantly, that God would cause this love and this hope and this faith to abound. Verse 9, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And we're going to stop right there. And that's going to be our focus. Paul's prayer. From the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So he sees their increase. He sees their fruitfulness. He's hearing about it from afar, and he's praying for them. And so we're going to look at his prayers. And let me tell you on the front end what he doesn't pray. I, I, I learn a lot by what doesn't, isn't said. You know, does that make sense? So I learn what is by what's not. So what he doesn't pray is he doesn't pray for solid expository preaching. He doesn't pray for a solid mission strategy. He doesn't pray for a hyped-up children's ministry. He doesn't pray for motivated serve teams. He doesn't pray for a, um, a, a, an awesome mercy ministry. He doesn't pray for any of that. Those are good things. Those are necessary things. Those are things that, that, that we do week in and week out. But to Paul, that is not the ultimate thing that he prays for. Instead of those good things, Paul focuses on the personal relationship with God of each individual saint in the church at Colossae. He prays for the people. He doesn't pray for the institution. He prays for the Christian. He doesn't pray for the body as a whole. He prays for each one. And he breaks down his prayer into two requests. The first one is this. Paul prays that they would know him. This is the first point that we're going to dive into, to know him. And the second thing he prays is that they would please him. 
So that's going to be the structure for our sermon, to know him and to please him. And, and that is Paul's prayer for this church. And that's my prayer for our church as well as we go into the new year, that we as a church and you as each individual believer in this church would know Christ and he would live to please Christ. All right. So let's dive in. Point number one, to know him. If you're a note taker, number one, know him. Verse nine, what have they prayed? We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So Paul is praying that they would know God. So how many of you have ever had this experience? You um, meet someone, and let's say you went to college with them, right? You went to the same city, and what, what game do you start playing? The name game, right? You start playing the name game. Like, do you know this? Do you know that? Is anyone, am I the only one that does that? Anyone else do that? Okay. Wow, me and, me and Corey over here play that game. So you play the name game, you say, hey, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? And when you're playing the name game, how many of you, someone says some, a name vague, vaguely familiar, like Ben Watson, and you're like, I think I've heard the name. Yeah, I know him. Great guy, right? Big mistake. Because then the person's like, yeah, that's my brother. I'm going to text him right now and let him know I met you. What do you say? Oh, I, I, I didn't, I, I'm sorry. Like, I, it was a long time ago. Like, I, I didn't really know him that well, right? And you, and you end up backpedaling hard, right? You, you were an acquaintance. You knew his name. You didn't really know him. What Paul's praying here is not that they would be vaguely familiar with God, not that they would be an acquaintance of God, not that they would be on a first name basis with God, but that they would know God. That word know is epigenosis. Epigenosis is to know deeply and intimately. Epi is all. So all knowing, to know everything. It's this deep, it's almost being entrenched into who God is, this deep knowledge of God. Paul's praying that they would know God. And what is this knowledge we're supposed to have? We'll keep reading. That they may be filled with the knowledge of his, what? I'll make you say it. Knowledge of his will, Okay. So the will of God is a little bit confusing. I'm going to give a little theological background on this. I think it's important for every area of your life. So God has, theologians divide God's will into two areas, his will of decree and his will of desire. God's will of decree is what he has ordained from the very beginning of time would happen in your life and my life throughout history. So in his will of decree was Adam and Eve eating the fruit, the flood happening. King David being king, King Solomon being king, Christ coming to earth and living a perfect life and dying, you coming to Christ. That was all in his will of decree, that he decreed from the foundation of the world, and that glorifies him. God's will of desire, when we talk about his will of desire, we're talking about what he wants in a particular moment. So let me give you an example. Christ on the cross. God's will of decree was that Christ would suffer and die as a criminal, this innocent man dying on behalf of us, right, to take our sins. But in that moment, his will of desire was not the cross. He hated the cross in the moment. The cross meant the innocent son dying. It meant his, him being separated from his son. That was not in his will of desire, but it was in his will of decree. Does that make sense? What Paul is talking about here is not that we would know God's will of decree. Paul's not interested in you knowing what job you're going to take next, where you're going to PCS to on your next move. He's not interested in you knowing who you're going to marry, um, what college you're going to go to, whatever. He's not interested in us knowing that. What he wants us to know is God's heart. What is God's will of desire? What does he want? What is God's heart in each moment? And when we know what God wants, we know his heart, right? Does that make sense? I'll give you an example. When I, I was dating Elizabeth, when I started dating her back in 2011, um, so we've been married for about seven years, seven and a half years. Uh, our first date, we went to a place called Heirloom. 
And background, I have a terrible memory, okay? I can't, if I, if I breeze past you in the hallway and I don't even look like, like I, I might not remember your name, okay? So please help me out a little bit. But terrible memory. And so I knew this about myself and I really wanted to love her well. And so what I did is I went home that night and I wrote down everything I learned about her, okay, in my journal. All the facts I learned about her, okay? And I have it right here, all right? Um, I, mean, I have a photocopy of it right here, right? I, I, I dug this back out again. November 12, 2011. She loves candy. Sour Patch Watermelon. She used to do theater. She's going to get so embarrassed by that. She's right here in the front, front row, by the way. This is my wife. Uh, she loves seafood. Um, she likes Krispy Kreme donuts, apple cinnamon, and raspberry filled especially. She grew up in a Baptist church. Her dad is a nurse anesthetist. She wants to travel Europe, right? All these facts I have about Elizabeth, there's about 40 of them here, okay? That I wrote, weird, right? Yeah, but I wrote them down, Okay. Right? Because I was trying to get to know her. They were, they were separated facts. But guess what? I've been married to her for seven years, and I know her heart. Right? I know her heart. And so do I need to make lists anymore? I hope not. Right? Because I know her heart. So I, I, don't need to, I don't need to make lists on who she is. And in the same way, Paul is praying not that we would know God, like that you would fill your head with facts about God, but that as you're reading and studying, that you would know God, that you would know his heart, that you would know him deeply and intimately right? So for Elizabeth, I, I know now the things that make her laugh and make her cry. I know the things that make her smile and the things that make her frown. I know how to love her, and I know what makes her feel unloved. And though I may not always act on those things, right, men? Um, I know them because I know her heart. In the same way, Paul's prayer for this church and, and my prayer for us is that we would know God, know his heart in the same way. We would know what God loves and what he hates. We would know what makes God laugh and what makes him cry. We would know what moves him to compassion and what fires him up in anger. But Paul gets even more specific than this, right? Let's keep reading. They may be filled with the knowledge of his will. They'd know God's heart in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, okay? So Paul fills all of his letters with a bunch of little short clauses, right? So this is a clause here. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So it's not just that they would know God, not just that they would know his heart. They'd be filled with wisdom and understanding. All right, a little bit more theology here. Knowledge is a sum total of facts about something. So knowledge is what I know about something in particular. So that's who is God. That's knowledge, all right? Understanding, it, the word means flowing together in Greek. Understanding is how what I know about God impacts everything else in life. How what I know about God has to do with government and, and finance and family and, and everything else. It's understanding is the flowing together of this knowledge. And then wisdom is the application of that knowledge in my day-to-day -day life. It is what does this understanding and knowledge have to do with this moment? How I please God in this moment. Solomon had wisdom. He knew how to discern right from wrong in a moment, right? So Paul prays not that just that we would know facts about God, not just that we would know how they apply, but how, how they apply in my life today. See, I think some of us in our knowledge of God, we, we view our quiet time and our Bible reading and, and sermon podcasts and, and Sunday morning as disconnected from Monday morning work disconnected from how you parent your kids, disconnected from how you love your wife, your husband, disconnected from all the rest of my life, dis disconnected from watching the Georgia game on Saturday. But what Paul is saying is those things are deeply connected. That Paul's prayer is that we would know God so that we can live out God's will in our lives. All right, so first prayer that we would know God. So Paul prays not just that we would know God and know his heart, and not just know his heart, but know how to live it out, but he also prays that they would please God. Oh, before we get there, 
That's the question. How can I know him? How can I know him? So we've, th- we've talked about what is this knowledge Paul's praying about. Let's get into how can I know him. Um, flip one page over in Colossians to Colossians 3.16. And Paul tells us how we are to know God. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So how do I know God? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If you're a note taker, write this down. We know God through a disciplined devotion to God's word. We know God through a disciplined devotion to God's word. Discipline, because let me tell you, you will not read and study and memorize and meditate on God's word without discipline, okay? I've lived in my own life and walked with other guys and girls long enough to know that, that on our own, like a, a spark of motivation will not get you reading and studying your Bible daily. We need discipline. And if you're going to know God, you need to daily be in his word. And if you're going to be in his word, you need a time, a place, a plan, and a person to hold you accountable, okay? You need a time. You know, what, what time am I going to be with God every day, right? Is it 6 a.m.? Is it 4 a.m.? Is it, is it 8 p.m.? What's my place? Where am I going to do it? Is it my living room couch? Is it my bed? Hopefully not. Um, where, where is it going to be? I need a, I need a plan. What am I going to read? And I need a person. Who's going to hold me accountable to do this, to walk alongside me in it? So you, we need discipline in God's word to know him. The second thing is devotion, a disciplined devotion. Devotion because discipline alone leads to a dry, shriveled up, hard heart. Right, there are a lot of men, a lot of atheist professors. I had some in college who know this word backward and forward, know it better than you ever will, but their heart's dry and hard. They hate God because it's been discipline, it's been structure, it's been academic, and they've hardened their heart. We need to have a devotion to God's word, to love God's word as well. And the final thing is, is a disciplined devotion to God's word. Books and sermons and podcasts and, and Bible studies and worship songs, all those things are good things. But those things are not living things. Those things are not active things. God's word alone is where we meet with God. God's word alone is living and active. If you're the type of person who's like, ah, I don't really read, I just listen to podcasts, that is not God's word. You, you, can, you can have a knowledge of God in podcasts and in sermons and in books, but to know God, we need God's word. This is living and active, Hebrews 12, 4 says. So Psalm 1 tells us, um, blessed is the man who delights in the word of God, who meditates on it day and night, that he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And then he says, well, the person that doesn't do this will be like chaff. You know what chaff is? Chaff is the dried up husk of a seed. So, so the psalmist in Psalm 1 isn't saying that the, there's, a, there's this man who, who reads God's word daily. He's like a tree planted by water. And the person that doesn't read the word is like this tree over here that's just dried up, right? No, he says, the man that's in the word is like a tree. The man that's not is like the, the dried up husk of a seed that just blows away with the wind, right? So we need to be in the word to know God in his word. And so one of the things that we have done for you is we have, uh, in the new year, we've made a bookmark Bible study plan for those of you that want it. It's, it's 90 days with the Apostle Paul. So we're going to be in the, in the book of Acts with Paul for nine months, like I said. So we have uh, taken all of Paul's letters and put them into a Bible study plan. So it's a chapter a day. It starts in Romans 1, um, and it basically reads through a chapter a day in Paul's letters. So we have on the table out there, if you want to grab one, we have bookmarks with that Bible study plan on it. I would encourage you, if you don't know, if you don't have a plan where you're going to be reading, grab one of those and start today. Start tomorrow morning, right? Begin reading the word with us as a church and, and learning about Paul in his word. So that is out front for you. Grab it on your way out. So we know God, but also the second prayer is that we would please God. Look back in Colossians 1, verse 10. 
that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, what does that word so mean? It means therefore. So we aren't just filled with knowledge to be filled with knowledge. There's a purpose. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul's second prayer for them is that they would please God. So his first prayer is that they would know God. His second prayer is that they would please God, right? And there are two equal and seemingly contradictory truths in the Christian life on pleasing God. The first one is this. God is already pleased with me because of Christ. Is that true? Raise your hands. That's true. Is that true? Yeah. Well, half of you are, some of you are right. That's true, okay? The second one is I must make it the aim of every moment of my life to please God. Is that true as well? Yes, that is true as well. There are two truths there. And each of us, though, tend to live out of one of those truths or the other, right? We tend to focus on one, one and what happens is it veers us away from God's path like a one-wing plane, right? But, but to please God, we need to believe both. So this is the first one. What does it mean to please God? Let's look at both of them. The first one is God is already pleased with me. God is already pleased with me, and that is absolutely true. If you're a Christian, God is pleased with you. He loves you. Because of Christ, you're in Christ. Everything said about Christ is said about you. And in Matthew, in, in, um, when Jesus is baptized, there's a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. With him I am well and pleased. God is pleased with you. You are his beloved son or daughter. If you're in Christ, all the pleasure of God, he's not disappointed in you. He's not angry with you. He is pleased with you. But what can happen is we can presume upon God's kindness and love for us. We can check the box of God's favor, and then we can move on to live as we want to live, right? We have no fear of God or longing to make him happy, and we end up living for ourselves, and we buy all the goods and services of Satan who came to steal, kill, and destroy, right? We live just like the rest of the world because we think, well, God's pleased with me so I can live however I want to live because I've already got God's pleasure. And we view the duties of the Christian life like studying the word and prayer and evangelism and discipleship and serving others. We view those as, as items on a buffet line, right? Well, I, I, I feel up to it today. I'm going to read my Bible today. I'm going to pray today. I'm going to share the gospel today. I, I'm going to disciple somebody. You know, we, there are items that we can pick and choose from when they suit us. The second thing is I strive to live each moment to please God. That's the second truth. And that's absolutely true. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul tells us that those who are true Christ followers make it their aim to please God. Have you made it your aim to please God? Is that the aim of every moment of your life? We make it our aim to please God. Jesus said that I please the Father in everything. Paul said that it was his aim to please God and not to please man. So it is good for us to please God. And a life of pleasing God is a life of joy. A life filled with the life of God. But what can happen here is we end up striving to make God happy when he's already happy with us. Instead of living to please God, we live to appease God as we would some irritable dad, right? Like we're walking around on eggshells. We're afraid to make a mistake because God might be angry, let alone sin, right? That is not living to please God, right? So how do we combine these two truths together? Both of these truths, if held alone, lead to death, but there's a radical middle. A radical middle is not a compromise, it's both together. And the radical middle says this, I live to please him who is already pleased with me. I live to please him who is already pleased with me. And this is no paradox. Um, I got an example here. Uh, young kids in the room, raise your hand if you are under the age of nine in the room. Hey, you're under the age of nine. Anne. There we go. That's my daughter right there. Under the age of nine. So, how many of you have ever drawn a picture for your parents? Anybody? 
Anybody, any kids draw a picture of your parents? Okay, so when you, when you get that picture and you bring it to your parents, let's say you drew an elephant with a sun in the sky in a desert, right? You brought it to your parents and you're so excited. You gave it to your dad. He came in from work and he looked at that picture and he said, what in the world is that? You said, oh, it's an elephant. He's like, that looks like a spider. It's not an elephant. You're like, what is that in the sky? It's the sun. Suns aren't blue. Suns are yellow, right? How would that make you feel? Anne's on the front row going, don't say that to me, daddy, right? It, it would make you feel small. Would it make you want to go draw another picture? No, right? It would not d- drive you to want to go draw, draw another picture. But let's say um, you gave the picture to your dad. He comes in and he says, oh, my gosh, is this for me? Thank you so much. What is it? It's an elephant. Oh, it's a, I love this elephant. You did such a great job drawing the trunk and the tail, and there's a lot of legs on that elephant, but I love that elephant. And what's this in the sky? It's the sun. Oh, man, those are some great sunbeams in the sky. That's good. Awesome job. I love you. Thank you so much. I'm going to put this on my desk. What is, what is your child going to do? What are you going to do, kids? Are you going to draw another picture? Oh, yeah. My house is filled with pictures, okay? Like pictures coming out our ears, right? We have pictures all over the place, right? Because when, when we feel the pleasure of someone, a father or a mother, it drives us not to get complacent and apathy, apathetic. It drives us to want to please. Does that make sense? And then guess what? You can s- then sit down with that child and say, hey, let me, let me show you how many legs an elephant has. Can I, can I, can I show you that? Or, hey, let me, let me draw a sun for you. This is the color you draw a sun. You think that child will be joyful and excited to receive that instruction? That's how God, your father, deals with you. He's not some angry, disappointed, and exacting father who is, who is ready, quick with a criticism. He's ready to embrace you because he loves you, because he's pleased with you, because he's delighted in you. Right? No matter how big your mistakes are, he is there ready. And then he walks alongside you in the correction. Right? And then that drives us then to want to please God in everything we do. If you grasp hold of this truth that God is fully pleased with you already, it will drive you to live a life to please him. And pleasing God will be your delight. So how? How do I live to please God? All right, so we know God through a disciplined devotion to God's word. We please God through a discerned doing of God's will. We please God through a discerned doing of God's will. So discernment, discernment, thinking, thoughtfulness, because we, to plow forward and just doing what we think God wants us to do is presumptuous, right? Some of you are like, I, I, don't, I don't need this. I don't need to study. I know what God wants me to do. I just do it, right? That's presumption. That's pride. You don't know God's will. You're not God. You don't know his mind. Discernment. We need to sit down and discern what it is God is try, calling us to do. Ephesians 5.10 tells us to try, to strive, to discern what is pleasing to God. Right? So how do I please God? What does this look like? I encourage you, take time this week to maybe write down the three or four arenas of your life, your workplace, your family, your home, your finances. Pick three or four and then write down and then really think through, how am I pleasing God? God, what, how am I doing in, in my workplace? How am I doing in my family? Look at the word. Look at what the Bible says about that and ask, hold your life up to the word and discern. What does it look like in the new year, this year, this month, this week, for me to walk with God, to please him in this area of my life? The second thing, a discerned doing of God's will. Doing, because to just sit back and process every decision leads to paralyzed perfectionism, right? How many of you are like me and just sit down and think through everything to, to death? Anybody else? Okay, I think everything to death, right? But why? Because I want the ideal solution. I'm looking for the perfect solution. So Andrew gets frustrated at me sometimes because I, I, will, I will read 
25 curriculums to find the right curriculum, right? And I worked on that bookmark. I, I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, and it just didn't look good. And so I just, I just spit something out, right? It's just like I, I get so paralyzed and I don't do anything. Does that make sense? So that's what we do in our lives if we don't start doing something. We can get fixated on that. James 1.22 tells us be doers of the word and not hearers only because we'll deceive ourselves. So how do I please God in this? Discern. Um, write down the last three convictions you have from God. What does this look like? Write down the last three convictions you had from God. Maybe it was in church on Sunday, in the Word. Maybe it was in, on your drive to work, listen to a podcast. What were the last three convictions you had from God? And then do. Take one small, simple step in each one of them this week. For you people that are like me, it doesn't have to be the perfect step. It doesn't have to be the ideal step. Take any step in doing that conviction, right? Because what happens to us is when we have a conviction for the Lord, and we sit down and we mull it over, and, and the conviction is God's telling us something, and then we don't do anything about it, that conviction gets stale in our hearts and we don't feel it again. We deceive ourselves. We need to be doers of the word of God. And I think for a lot of you, most likely, I'm not just saying this because we have it, most likely the next step for you is to go and pick a bookmark up, and Monday morning at 6 a.m., set your alarm clock, maybe set your coffee pot to go off at 6 a.m., and get up and read Romans 1 with me and Andrew and Elizabeth and anyone else in our church that's going to read Romans 1 with us, read Romans 1 tomorrow morning. And then on Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., your coffee's ready because you set the automatic pot, read Romans 2. And then Friday morning, when you forgot Wednesday and Thursday, pick up at Romans 3, right? And then maybe some of you might be getting to the end of Paul's letters in like December, but it doesn't matter. You're developing a healthy habit. You're doing something. You're beginning to move forward in your walk with God. Will you begin to live to please God. What is it for you? What are the last convictions the Lord brought into your life and how can you live to please him in those things? To know God and to please God. So here's the question, my conclusion, why Emmanuel? Why am I keeping it in, in this Christmassy series when I said nothing about Christmas? We started our Advent series in Matthew chapter one. In the very first scene of Matthew, Matthew's the letter as well. The very first scene, we have a man named Joseph and an angel appears to him and he says, your betrothed Mary is gonna have a baby right? And kids, what's that baby's name going to be? Jesus. And there was a prophecy from Isaiah that was listed by the angel, and, and it said his name shall be what? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean, kids? God with us. God with us. A little rusty there. That's okay. God with us. Well, God was with them. Christ had come to earth as a man, and he walked alongside his people for 33 years. But the end of Matthew, the very last scene of Matthew, Jesus is standing with his disciples on a mountain, and God with us came to earth, but God with us was about to leave. He was about to ascend into heaven, and he's standing with his disciples, and he's giving them his last charge. And at the very end, and they're sitting there wondering, well, God, you, you, you came down. Like, why are you leaving? Like, you're with us. You died, and that scared us, but then you rose, and you're here, but you've been with us 40 days, but now you're going. Why are you going? You're, you're supposed to be Emmanuel. You're supposed to be God with us. Matthew 28 Verse 20, the very last verse in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is ascending into heaven and he says, I am with you. What does he mean? He means that just because he is at the right hand of the Father doesn't mean he isn't with us. He sends his Holy Spirit at Pentecost 10 days later, later and fills his people with a knowledge of his will. He fills his people with the Spirit, so he is with you, Christian. 
And so what that means for knowing God is it means that we don't stand, we don't know God by standing far away and observing him from a distance. We don't read this as a dry text. God meets with us in his word. He meets with us as we hear preaching. He meets with us in worship. God meets with his people. God is intimately involved. He is with you in your life. And we don't please God by striving to please some distant father who's disappointed in you, who doesn't care about you, who's, who's disconnected from the affairs of your life. We please a father that is near, a father who is with us, a father that meets with us every day if we'll meet with him. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And some of you maybe grew up in a family with a father that was distant. Maybe you grew up in a church that was very strict and, and had a very high view of God, but, but didn't really teach you that God is with you. I'd invite you in this new year, would you not just try to start doing things for God? Would you walk with him? Because he's walking with you. He bought you. He bought the right to be in your life. Will you, will you seek him? Will you trust him? Will you walk with him in this new year? And for some of you, that might be something you've never heard before. And I'd invite you, would you begin to ask God, God, show me what it looks like that you're with me. Show me what it looks like to walk with you. Each moment to walk with you intimately. Let me tell you, if you take up this path of knowing and pleasing God, you're not alone in the journey. He is with you always, even to the very end of the age. So let me pray for us. Y'all go ahead and stand with me. Let me pray for us. And we're going to get back into worship right now. God, thank you, Christ, that you came to earth as a baby. You humbled yourself. And you didn't leave us alone, but you sent your Holy Spirit to be with us. Thank you that we can know you, not, not a dry academic knowledge, but we can know your heart. We can, we can know you deeply. Lord, thank you that we can please you. Thank you that you're pleased with us, Father. I pray that we would live out of these truths in the new year. I pray that men and women in this, in this room and kids in this room who have strayed away from you, who have um, strayed away in their obedience, strayed away in their dedication, strayed away in their devotion, Lord, would in this new year have a, have a recommitment to know you, to walk with you, to please you, to live with you, to walk with the God that is with us, God. Fill us with your peace, fill us with your joy, fill us with your life. Lord, we want to be a church that there's something different about us because God is among us. We want to be a church that brings Christ to our neighborhoods and our families and our workplaces and our gyms, God, because we are walking with the God that is with us. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you that you're with us. Lord, we love you. Praise things in your name. Amen.